Hey everyone, you're listening to Can You Hear Us Now? Inclusivity in the Media, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of those in marginalized communities who are frequently overlooked in the mainstream media. Each week we discuss new topics in order to promote representation of those who are recurrently silenced or ignored. Our program aims to bring awareness to these issues in order to stimulate inclusivity in the media. Let's get into it. My name is Julian Berger, and along with Pravina Samasundura and Maddie Ellis, we welcome you to our podcast episode titled Reporting on People with Disabilities. To know more about reporting on people with disabilities in journalism, we turn to Eric Garcia, the senior Washington correspondent for The Independent and author of We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. With a reporter's eye and an insider's perspective, Eric Garcia shows what it's like to be autistic across America. What have been the root causes of like these negative portrayals, stereotypes, you know, like, you know, people do make these, you know, irrational comments, but where, where do those thinking come from? I think a lot of it comes from the fact that we don't really, we haven't really understood autism really well for a long time. You have to remember, autism was really only, Eugen Bloiler, who was a Swiss, I believe, psychiatrist, only started talking, only first mentioned autism in around 1908 to 1911. That's, that means that we've only been, we've only known that autism is a thing for about a hundred years. Even then he saw it as, as a symptom of childhood schizophrenia. It was, and even then, it wasn't until the 1940s when Leo Connor, uh, by the way, that's L-E-O-K-A-N-N-E-R, Leo Connor, he did it the first real wide, widely read study in the United States of America, uh, profiling 11 autistic children. Uh, I believe eight of them were, uh, I believe eight of them were boys and three of them were girls and like nine of them were white Anglo-Saxon and two of them were Jewish. And then meanwhile, the other person was doing research. Uh, so, so, that, so that created a very, very limited perspective of who could be autistic. And then on top of that, you had people like Bruno Bettelheim uh, you, you know, uh, uh, you had people like Bruno Bettelheim who were spending, spreading really bad ideas about autism. Uh, he was blaming uh, parents. He was saying that, like, you know, the, the reason why autistic children, uh, why children become autistic is that their parents wish they didn't exist. And that was just not true. Meanwhile, in Austria during the war, during, you know, in World War II, uh, Hans Osberger, a lot of his studies were only in German, but even then, guess, you know, what was happening in World War II in, in Austria, the Nazis. Um, so, you know, a lot of his, so he was referring some of his children to Nazi clinics, you know, or to clinics where children died, where the Nazis were killing people, or like at least let people die. So, so there's that, so there's that problem. So I think a lot of it is rooted in the fact that we had a very, very limited understanding of who could be autistic. Even Hans Osberger, he didn't think for a long time, he didn't believe that, uh, and yes, that's the person who we get the term Osberger syndrome from. Uh, he didn't believe that autism could happen to girls. So as a result, a lot of our problems about how we understand autism are rooted in the fact that we have only started to really understand, only know about autism in the last century. And on top of that, we've only really started, we've only really started to do away with those bad ideas about autism 
recently. So we only started getting rid of the idea that toxic parents caused, causes, caused autism until like the 1960s and the 70s. And then like what happened after that, like, you know, 20 years after that, we had this panic about vaccines. So a lot of this just comes from, we just have bad ideas about autism. Where do you see the state of coverage of, you know, not just autism, but, you know, other disabilities as well? Where do you see that, you know, coverage today? A lot of times you still see, there's still this, this uh, impulse to, um, to portray a dichotomy between either like um, uh, autistic people are either in- incredibly inspiring or objects of pity, or like, you know, you see, oh, look, this autistic person graduated from college. That's, I hate to say it, that's not a story. That's not a news story. Um, you know, and if it's going to be a news story, the question is to ask, like, why are we treating this as a news story? How did he graduate from college? We know the graduation rates for autistic people is really low. Like, how, what were the things that it took? So very rarely do we treat autistic people like people. You know, I think one of the questions you need to constantly ask yourself is like, would I write about this about any other person? And the answer is oftentimes no. But like, if you, but then like, if you're gonna write something about, you know, an autistic student graduates college or a student with cerebral palsy gets a job or something like that, you gotta ask like, okay, how do they get a job? Why is that such an outlier? Why are we treated? I think a lot of that requires us checking our own biases. I think a lot of times, People with disabilities are excluded from journalism because we're thought of as, oh, we, we're going to be biased in our coverage, while ignoring the fact that a lot of able people are biased in their coverage, bringing their own biases and their own preconceived notions about uh, about disability in news coverage. So, Going off of that, we also wanted to talk a little bit about um, what changes that could be made, like things in journalism education or changes within newsrooms that might um, equip journalists better to do better jobs. I, mean, I think one of the things that, that, that can be done is, is a whole class on how to cover people with disabilities and how to talk to people with disabilities. I think, for example, uh, one of the things that I had to shed was like, I really wanted to, initially I didn't think it was important to include, include non-speaking voices in my, if you read my initial piece that I wrote in National Journal, I didn't quote non-speaking autistic people. And I think a big part of that is that a lot of us, we see it as an inconvenience because we have to resend questions to them, you know, if they can, if they, if they can type. Or we assume that they that their voices aren't uh, important if they have intellectual disabilities. Oftentimes, we presume incompetence. So I think that's one thing is like learning to unlearn that because I think in journalism we're taught you shouldn't send e- you shouldn't email questions beforehand because that gives people time to, you know, formulate a canned response. What I hope is that I, I hope that we encourage more people with disabilities to join the news industry. I hope we build a pipeline to help them thrive. It's not enough. A lot of news. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of how much trouble I want to get into. Um, okay, no, I, 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 I'm figuring out. Okay, I figured it out. I'm not going to give too many people a hard time. I'm not going to call anybody up. But a lot of newsrooms are bragging about hiring people with disabilities, creating fellowship programs, uh, in doing more inclusion kind of programs and now, you know, or, or things, but they're not actually changing the culture within their newsrooms. Uh, they're not, they are, uh, they want to hire more people with disabilities in newsrooms, even if they do try to, without actually examining what does it look like to make an environment where people would want to stay in this industry. Hiring people is nice. But it's not a remedy for the problem. 
People with disabilities comprise 19% of the population, making it the largest minority group in the country. The National Center on Disability and Journalism, housed at the Journalism School at Arizona State University, aims to provide guidance to reporters on how they can better cover this community. Kristen Gilger is the executive director of this center. Kristen, can you describe your role at the NCDJ? We worked on a style guide, language style guide, had an advisory board, and it's just really grown dramatically over the years. And the interest is much, much greater now. You know, I mean, it's it's remarkable. And it's not just in the United States, it's around the world. You know, we get contacted by people all over the world about how to do a better job of covering disability. What was it like creating the first style guide for disability coverage? That's sort of the journalist Bible, right, when you're trying to figure out the correct word or term to use. And uh, AP didn't pay much attention to it. That actually has gotten better. Um, in fact, they're in the process now of adding a bunch of references uh, to disability in the guide using a lot of what we provide. Kristen said the center also offers newsroom trainings, a disability reporting fellowship with The New York Times, and it hosts an annual contest celebrating the best reporting about disability. Kristen, how would you describe the state of disability coverage today? There's no, There are no statistics that I'm aware of that say how many people with disabilities are employed in newsrooms, but certainly it's not a huge number, and that has not been a focus of uh, diversity hiring. And, um, and, you know, to be honest, you're never going to do a great job of covering disability unless people with disabilities are represented in your newsroom. One of the center's primary goals is rather simple, build confidence. The provided resources aim to give reporters important background knowledge and skills that will encourage them to pursue these stories around disability that for so long have gone uncovered. If you're really unsure about how to refer to people with disabilities, um, you're much more, I think, as a journalist, reluctant to, to cover those stories at all. It's like you're just sure you're going to make some terrible mistake. You know, you're going to offend somebody. You're not going to get it right. And so a lot of what we're trying to do is just build confidence. Like, you know, you may not know a lot about disability yourself. You may not live with a disability yourself as a journalist, but, you know, you can you can do this. You can delve into this area and provide some important coverage, you know, if you're just feeling a little bit more confident that you can do it correctly. Kristen, how can journalism education improve? You know, I think those three things are things that journalism schools can, you know, at least introduce so that there's some level of awareness as students go out into the profession that, A, this group of people exists, and it's an important large group in terms of covering your audience, and, um, and that there are, there are, there's help in terms of language and guidance on what kind of language you use, and to think more deeply about how you tell those stories. Thanks for listening to the Can You Hear Us Now podcast. We hope you were able to expand your mind 
and shed some light on this week's topic regarding reporting on people with disabilities. As always, we encourage you all to take a closer look at the media you consume, and don't be afraid to advocate for those who might not have a voice. Make sure to tune in next time when we discuss the depiction of rural and southern individuals and communities in the media. You can also head over to our website, CanYouHearUsNowPodcast.com, or visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter to check out more information and resources relating to our episodes. Be sure to subscribe to our program on most podcasting platforms, including Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audible, and Simplecast. We'll see you next time.